Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. This is the second week of my Healing Herself series, as I share stories from four women who have survived body issues, sexual assault, shame, and trauma. Each of them has healed herself. Today, I'm honored to host author, speaker, and psychotherapist Madeline Black, my second guest from the UK, who survived a gang rape at the tender age of 13. She has a viral TED Talk, is host of Unbroken the Podcast with Madeline Black, and has also written a book about her experience. Since I was sexually assaulted at the age of 13 as well, Madeline and I had a tender, intimate conversation about how this experience changed both of our lives. I posted photos and further details about Madeline on my website, including links to her website and podcast. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, let's meet Madeline. Hello, Madeline. Thank you so much for coming on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. You are welcome, Marie. So lovely to join you. So lovely to have you on my show. You're the second person from the UK I've interviewed. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wonderful. So let's go back to the very beginning. Can you tell us about your life beginnings? What was your childhood like before you were 13? I am one of five. My parents, I guess you could say, are both strong survivors. My dad was a Holocaust survivor who literally had all of his family murdered in Auschwitz. But I could never understand how my dad could laugh and love life. But now I see, you know, that was his strength. His laughter was his strength. And my mum, she was having an operation when I was a little girl and her neck was broken in the operation. So she woke up bedridden. So we had a long time of my mum being cared for with neck and back injuries, you know, housekeepers in the house. But it, it sounds like it was a tough, you know, that was tough, but it was it was a good childhood. You know, I was happy as a little girl. Oh, my gosh. So you saw your parents as they were modeling survival throughout your life. Yeah, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. But later on, when I had my own experience of trauma, my dad, not really by what he said, but, you know, by how he lived his life, I thought, well, if he can get past that, surely I can get past one night. And if my mum, who now, you know, healed herself, literally, if she can do that, then we are all really so much stronger than we think we are. We all have that capability within to heal. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Are your parents still around? My dad sadly isn't. He passed away about 22 years ago. But my mum is 80 and she's still with us and lives right around the corner from me. So it's brilliant. Oh, that's wonderful. I know that right now in the UK, they've really instituted a, quite a strict lockdown. Is that same in Glasgow? It is. Scotland is in lockdown number three, which was meant to end the end of January, as we're filming this, recording this in the middle of January. But we've now been told it's going to go to mid-Feb. So hopefully this will be the last time uh, that we're in lockdown. 
done and we'll get vaccinated and things will start to shift and change and life can get back to I don't like to say the word normal because I don't know if it'll ever be normal again. <laughs> I, know. I know we talked to our the friend that I, I told you about who introduced us from Glasgow we talked to her the other day but she was telling us about the vaccination it seems like it's on a pretty good pace to get people vaccinated there. Yeah, that they're starting. It's not been rolled out that much in Scotland, but they're starting. So it's it's great that it started. That's good. It's a lot slower here in the US. So we were glad to hear that it was moving faster there. So jumping ahead to when you were 13, and I just wanted to tell you as well that um, I was actually sexually assaulted when I was 13 as well. So your story really resonated with me, not by two people, but by one person, a stranger in my home. And I was with two other girls at the time. So I feel you in my heart what you've been living with. So why don't you tell us about what happened when you were 13? Sure. So I had a friend at school who was, you know, really cool. She had the best clothes and the best hair and the best makeup. You know, everybody wanted to be her. And it was at the time when my mum was bedridden. So things at home, but, you know, it wasn't too exciting. It was a bit tough. And she suggested this night out. And I obviously said yes straight away. And her mum was away. And we both lied about where we were staying. And we used her empty flat. She was meant to be staying at mine and... I told my mum I'm staying at her grandma's, but we managed somehow to buy alcohol. This was the late 1970s, but we bought a bottle of vodka and we took it to a local cafe in North London and we drank it. And I was just this little skinny 13-year-old girl who had never drunk before. And obviously, unsurprisingly, it didn't take me very long to get drunk. And soon, I guess I was just throwing up everywhere. And two of the young men that were sitting at our table took us back to her mum's empty flat in a taxi. And it just became very obvious very quickly that they weren't there really to let me sleep off the alcohol, put me in the bed, you know, let me sleep it off at all. They were there for something else. And the two of them proceeded to rape and torture me over the next four to five hours. I watched your TED talk and it sounds like you woke up. You didn't really realize what had happened initially. Is that right? Well, in the beginning, yeah, it's very odd what trauma and shock does to your body because, you know, during the event, I had an out-of-body experience. I think because I was so close to being killed, I really left my body and I became aware that I was down on the ground watching, but I was also sitting on top of the wardrobe watching the event. And since I've shared my story and and I know as well, because I'm also a psychotherapist, that it's a very common practice when the trauma is too overwhelming that you have to get out of the way. Because if I'd stayed in my body, I don't think I would be here. I think the trauma would have been too much. Well, I thought it was interesting, the details that you remembered, like the wallpaper and in my own experience that, you know, I don't feel like I have a really great memory for all the details, but the thing that I remember is that we, that there was a TV show called Barnaby Jones and that mm-hmm. was playing on the television while this was happening. So I have these vivid, vi- a, f- a few vivid memories of that night. And it's interesting how you can really hone in on certain details of your trauma episode. Absolutely. So what I did, I became aware that there was a wallpaper border and it was made out of pink and grey bows. And for a long, long time before I really left my body, I just counted them over and over and over again. And there were 44. Yet that really kept me sane. The counting kept me sane. I just counted them over and over just to really avoid connecting with these two men that were violating my body. Just to really, you know, I didn't wasn't even aware on a conscious level that I was doing it. But somehow my mind needed obviously a massive distraction from what was taking place. And I tuned into counting. So counting really saved my life. And It's a number that I literally see all the time. 
even now it's it always appears to me so I find it a very comforting number if that makes any sense really wow that's really interesting because it kind of got you through that experience oh my gosh so I'm assuming that you were 13 I was 13 that was your first experience with any kind of yeah that same with me and what a what a horrible way to be exposed to sex I mean it's really violence more than sex but horrible it was and sadly we know that your story my story is just a story of many many people our stories are not uncommon and yet still we struggle to speak out about it still not many people will talk openly because of the shame that's so wrapped up in the event but it you know it took me years and years to realize that the shame it never belonged to me you know it always belonged to them i read somewhere that they were actually american is that right they were yes they were they were sons of diplomats that were living in london for a couple of years sons of diplomats oh my my husband's a son of di- a diplomat oh my gosh wow so they were well, just they were just there temporarily yeah a couple of years so people assume you know that uh, there's a type of person that is a rapist but they can be sons of diplomats they can be brothers it can be fathers it can be neighbors it can be friends it's not necessarily somebody from a poverty-stricken area, you know, there's a lot of men can be rapists if they choose to be. Exactly. So you woke up the next morning and you just, you and your friend decided to cover it up because you were embarrassed about not following your parents' directions. Can you talk a little bit more about the next morning? I guess even though I wasn't aware on a conscious level, on a subconscious level, I must have bought into all the rape myths that sadly are still around now. I just thought to myself, well, you know, I lied to my mum and dad. I'd bought alcohol. I'd met boys. We'd used an empty flat. We're going to get in trouble. You know, I just already thought it was my fault. You know, kind of what did I expect? It was bound to happen if I went out and, and did that. So, yeah, we, we just decided to clean up the flat and not speak about it. Do you remember that being a hard decision or it was just like the only choice you had? It just felt like exactly like uh-huh. the only choice that I had. It didn't, I didn't, because also one of the very last things that they did to me before they left is that they held the knife against my throat and they had used the knife on me already. And they told me that if I spoke about it, they would find me and kill me. And, you know, I believed them. I looked into the uh-huh. eyes of one of them and without a doubt, he's the one I call the worst one. He was quite capable of killing me. I, I didn't. Wow. And they stabbed you. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So then, if I recall, you told your parents a few years later. Yeah, I was 16. My behavior was off the wall at that point because, you know, what what we don't speak about, it's got to come out somehow. And I rebelled and rebelled, I think maybe hoping that somebody would guess that my behaviour was so off the wall that there must be something wrong, but nobody ever really did. And I think it was after a night out when my mum called me to stay in and I was sneaking in late and she's waiting in the hallway for me and she's just so angry and she's shaking me and she's saying to me, you know, anything could happen, you're putting your life in danger. And inside my head, I'm thinking, well, actually, the worst has already happened, but I still couldn't actually find my voice to tell her So I wrote it in a little note, which I left on my pillow before I went to school the following morning. And then when I came back from school, both of my parents were waiting and they asked me if it was true. And I told them it was. So you were being promiscuous, you were doing drugs, that kind of thing. You were kind of acting out as a way to cope. You know, the promiscuity Uh was really because I was just too scared to say no. I was scared Uh it would become violent. And then the more I was, the more I didn't say no, the more I invited attention. So it was, you know vicious circle and the drugs and the alcohol were really just to numb out you know just to not feel and to put it as far away from my head as I possibly could 
I also became anorexic, which now looking back, it was just a control thing. If I could control what I was eating, that was my focus. So that was another avoidance tactic. And I became very suicidal. So I attempted suicide, which ended up me staying in a psychiatric ward for three to four months when I was just 13. I had my 14th birthday in there. So it was a very dark period in my life. Oh my gosh, that happened right after the attack. And nobody ever asked you, like nobody ever delved into what had happened. Oh my gosh. When I was writing my book, somebody said to me, you know, you can apply for your notes, which I did. And it wasn't an easy read. It was difficult to read, but I wanted to see if they had any idea, you know, why this normal-ish 13-year-old girl just turned into one overnight who couldn't speak and eat and hated herself because my opinion of myself was so low. You know, it really affected my self-worth and my self-confidence and yeah, my image of myself, but they didn't. They just had me down as an adolescent with an eating disorder. And like you, I've looked back now and I think all we do is we label people. We look at their behavior. We don't look at what's behind it. No one ever asked me the right questions of what happened to you rather than why you, you know, they just looked at the behavior of what I was doing. So your parents must have been so upset when they learned this. Yeah, well, I had different responses. My dad, so we phoned the other girl that was involved and she said it hadn't happened like I said it had, you know. They were nice boys. They just brought us home. They wouldn't do that. And that shocked me. Uh-huh. I, you know, I felt very betrayed. And my dad was still insistent on going to the police. But because of the threat from them, I was terrified. I said no. And my mum was really, really quiet. And I didn't understand her silence for years. And it sadly, it took to even after my father had passed away, that she disclosed to me as an eight-year-old she had been raped by a neighbour. So every <sighs> time my grandma would send her to play of her friend, this man would abuse my mum. She was able to find her voice and she told her brother, who then told my grandparents, and this man was charged and they discovered he was also abusing his daughters. But whilst he was in prison, my mum's family, they moved house and, you know, they never spoke about it again. So in that moment when I'm confronting them with my story, my truth, my mum was silenced by her trauma. I mean, she couldn't say anything because my dad didn't know. They had five children together, nearly 40 years married, and he had no idea till the day, you know, even when he died, he still had no idea what had happened to my mum. And it took me a long time to understand that, only with her explanation. But in that moment, I thought, my friend has betrayed me and my mum doesn't believe me. I can't imagine what your mother must have been going through. That's heartbreaking. Oh, to have that happen to her daughter. Oh, my gosh. It was interesting when I now become, when I now speak out to see what it did to other people, especially my mum. So she would went through this whole number of saying, I should have done something to protect you. It was my fault it happened. And I said, but look, could granny stop what happened to you? That wasn't, Mm. that wasn't granny's fault. You know, it was the fault of the man who chose to abuse you. But so... She's had an interesting journey with me becoming public with my story. And now she just says, you're very brave and I couldn't do that. And I, I love you very much. And she said, I know now it wasn't my fault either. So it's it's amazing what our own journey does it does to somebody else. Yes, exactly. I think my parents have a similar feeling to me telling my story as well. So you dropped out of school, yeah. right? <laughs> and that was, you were like 16 or 17 when that happened? Yeah, I was just 16 when I left school and I was still, you know, my behaviour was still a bit off the charts and my parents suggested it would be a good idea to get away because I was smoking a lot of dope. 
And they said, why don't you go away for a year, you know, leave these, this bad circle of friends behind. And I did. I went to Israel for a year. And it's there I met this sportsman who did have a head full of blonde hair in those days. He doesn't anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, guess he this was the first man that instinctively I felt safe with. And it's been 37 years now. And we're still together. So I guess my I was right to trust my instincts. And after about five years, you know, he popped the question and asked me to marry him. And I had told him I had an incident when I was younger. He didn't know too many details, but I also told him I I couldn't become a mother. I was terrified, you know, the thought of giving birth. I just thought it would be like being raped again. It just, I can't tell you how much anxiety and fears that it it brought up. I mean, he was okay to start with. And so we got married. And about three years after we were married, he said, you know, just wondered out loud, one day, how about starting a family? And I, I was ready to say, come on, you know why I can't do that, blah, blah, blah. But in that moment, I thought, you know, if I don't become a mum, then they've won. I'm handing all my power and control over to these two men, and they have no idea that they're still manipulating my life. So I came up with a plan I call my best revenge, that I was not only determined to become a mum, but I was going to live my life as best as I possibly could. So he knew some of the details, but it took many, many, many years later till my eldest daughter was 13. I went on to have three gorgeous girls. I, I can say they're gorgeous because I'm their mum. So it didn't. It took till Anna was 13 for me to really tell him all, all of the details from that night. It took me a long time. So I have done so much personal development, so many courses, and it might not be his thing, but he always supported me in going. He said, if it helps you, then go. It's absolutely fine. Uh, money, whatever. Oh, he's, he's been an amazing support. Very patient. Yeah, I remember when I first told my husband when we were, we were still dating. I remember sitting out on this balcony in Japan where we lived at the time and kind of one afternoon with a bottle of wine, like spilling it all out. And in a way, it was sort of like a test because we were still dating. You know, it's just something that I felt like I needed to share. But I'd also done a lot of processing because when I was in college in my advanced composition class, I wrote an essay about it. And my professor actually got me to read it out in front of the in front of the class. And it was okay. terrifying. It was terrifying, but it was really cathartic. And so college, yeah, in college, I did a lot of processing of it. But it's a hard thing to be able to share that information. So the yeah, friend- I, I couldn't tell him face to face. I could only tell him when we were in bed and it was <laughs> at nighttime and the lights were off and he held my hand under the covers. And that's the only way I could tell him because my shame was still so huge. And I was really concerned if he knew all the intricate details that maybe he would be put off me. You know, he wouldn't want to know. He wouldn't want <sighs> to be intimate with me anymore. And he'd look at me in a different way. But that was my shame still speaking to me and my trauma. And you are a psychotherapist. When did you I decide am. to become a psychotherapist? Well, interesting, a lot of people think it's because of my own experience, but it's actually because of my dad's experience. I was always intrigued that, you know, his sister also survived Auschwitz. She was really disturbed. She had chronic schizophrenia, agoraphobia, paranoia. And my dad really loved life. You know, if you met him, you would have no knowledge of what immense trauma that he had suffered as a young boy, actually, really young And that that always intrigued me how two people can have the same experience but come out so differently. And I worked for a long time in women's organisations. I worked for Women's Aid, Women Fleeing Domestic Abuse for about 14 years. And I worked at Rape Crisis on the helpline for six years. And it was really just to become a better support worker when I was working at Women's Aid. But I started my counselling course and I just really loved it. <laughs> and then I went on to do psychotherapy and then I became a therapist. So I left Women's Aid 
and I worked in just, you know, general practice, general therapy, working with men as well, which was a challenge to start with, but I got, it actually really helped me with my own fears around men and being alone with men. Yeah, it, it really helped me actually. What are the types of PTSD effects that you've seen from your experience? Not trusting men, maybe not feeling comfortable around men. Are there other things that... So many. <laughs> I know. And, and it, it was only really when I was doing my training for rape crisis to become a support worker on the helpline that we were looking at PTSD one night, disassociation, and I went, oh my gosh, I've had that, 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 that. And I started to tick the list off. And I never realised that for years I lived with undiagnosed PTSD. So now I'm in such a good place, it's hard to remember all of the things. But I was paranoid about my safety. I was hypervigilant. You know, I'd get into my car, I'd press the button straight away. I would never go in a taxi or take public transport. If I saw a man when I was walking down the street, I'd cross over couldn't park my car if the car park was above one level because there were too many stairs. I couldn't go in the lift in case a man came in. Really just all the time, fear, 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 all the time. Everything I, I had to analyse to see if there was any danger. And I just saw it everywhere. And it's kind of ironic because the worst thing had already happened to me, but your mind gets stuck in that trauma space. And when you change your thinking about what happened to you, that you could only really see your trauma differently. So that took a lot of work. Well, you and I are both so lucky that we met fairly young, met men who were incredible and supportive and, you know, were able to go. I have three kids as well. They're all boys. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think that Stephen was an angel sent to save me because I think if I hadn't met him, what would have happened? So what made you decide to go public with your story? You know what? I had always done little snippets of press or it was building up to little snippets and they would have say to me, you know, can we have a photo? And I say, absolutely not. You know, it's OK. You've got my first name and I'm not going to give you any more details. And then I was just chatting online on a Facebook page with an organisation based in London called The Forgiveness Project because I went on, I chose to forgive these two men in order to set myself free from the past, so to speak. And the founder heard about my story and she shares stories of forgiveness and she asked if she could share my story. And she said, you know, you don't need to put your photo up or have your name, you can be anonymous. And I just thought, this was about six years ago, you know, I'm tired of being ashamed for a crime that's committed against my body, a crime that I never invited in and had nothing to do with me. I've held on to all this shame for years and it was never mine. It was inappropriate shame that was backed up by the society messages of rape myths and victim blaming. And I just thought, no, I am going to share my story. So I did with my face and my name. I'm not saying it was easy. I was still terrified because... A lot of my friends, the ones that knew, they didn't know it was near fatal. They didn't know how violent it was. And a lot of my friends didn't even know or all my family didn't know all the details. So it felt very exposing at first. It was very new, obviously, and anything that's new feels off. But the more I settled into it, the more I saw what sharing our stories does for other people. I just thought absolutely was the right decision to give it oxygen, you know, to share my message out there. When the Me Too movement started happening, how did that affect you at the time? It actually was amazing timing because my memoir, Unbroken, was published about three months before the Me Too phenomena started up again. So it allowed me to connect with all these huge names in Twitter and social media that I would never have had contact with. So like <laughs> Rose McGowan, Rosanna Arquette, Mira Sivano, all the people that are very big in the movement. And I've met a few of them as well since when they've been over in the UK. 
And, you know, it really shows me that there is a strength in numbers, you know, our uh, voices are being heard and our voices are rising and women will not accept what my mum went through. You know, every day at work, she said her boss would pinch her bum or squeeze her waist. And that was normal, normal behaviour. And if you complained, you'd, you'd be kicked out of your job. I hope my three girls never know about any sexual harassment, let alone sexual assault. So I think it is fantastic. And, uh, I'm huge respect for the Me Too movement and I campaign with it all the time. There's always a hashtag Me Too in most things that I post. Yeah, I found that that period was a little traumatizing for me, actually, because it wasn't the fact that women were sharing more so that it was the comments, the people who were shaming or who were denying or saying, oh, so-and-so couldn't possibly have done that, that I found very, it was really traumatizing. But that just shows me where the work is, you know, that just motivates me even more, shows us that there's so much more work to do, because if your house was broken into nobody would say too well you know what did you expect you've got a lot of furniture inside your house so why is it with this crime that we always judge the victim and we always blame the victim or we protect the perpetrator so it actually just motivates me to carry on speaking out when I hear these kind of messages of victim blaming yeah and and I think that rape or sexual assault is the one or even sexual harassment they're the only crimes where the victim has to prove that it happened You know, yes. it's all the onus is on the victim. It's it's really horrible. So how did you tell your kids? How did they react to all this? Well, they've always known and I've always told them from an age appropriate age, really lang- using their language. Um, so for a long time, they knew that mummy was hurt very badly by two boys. That's how I used to tell them. And as they've got older, I've been very clear about consent, about sexual relationships, maybe too much for them. <laughs> you know, because I just want them to be clear and I want them yeah. to make choices because it's their body, it's their choice. And right. so they've always known. And when I decided to share my story with the Forgiveness Project, I emailed a lot of family and said, this is what I'm going to do. You can read it first before it goes public or you can wait till it goes public. And it was split. And it was interesting, actually, when I wrote my book, um, I also gave my manuscript to my girls. So my eldest daughter read the chapter about herself. My middle daughter read the very end chapter. But my youngest one, Layla, who was actually only 13 at the time, she read all of it. And I, I don't hold back. I do put all the details in because I didn't want to dilute what had happened to me to make it easier for people to digest We should be disturbed. You know, it is disturbing what takes place out there every day on our planet to a woman, a man or a child. So I was, I was amazed that she had read it all. But they're very supportive and totally behind what I do. So much so that, in fact, I will get messages from some of their friends to let me know that one of their flatmates has been raped at uni and they don't know what to do. She doesn't want to tell the mum, what would I suggest? How can I, they best support her? So all of their friends know that I... I'm an activist and I speak out about sexual violence. Wow, what a great resource you, you are for your children's friends. So you, since then, four years ago, you've done a TED Talk, you've written a book. I mean, what was that like going up on stage to give the TED Talk and telling these things about yourself? I say it was one of the most terrifying but the most liberating moments of my life. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it, it was both. I'd never spoken to such a huge audience before. There were over 2,000 people there. And I thought, what am I going to do? Right, I'll focus on my family. And then I looked at my husband and there's these massive tears plopping out of his eyes onto his lap. I I can't look at him. He just said he was overwhelmed. He just suddenly appreciated the journey that I'd been on. It's led to this huge moment. But it it was actually really okay. 
I was so nervous when I was waiting to go out and all I could see was all these faces looking back at me. What I know now is that actually you can't see all 2,000 people because of the lights. <laughs> so that was good. But once I got out and I stood on that red dot, I grounded myself by saying, you know, this isn't about me speaking. This is about who's listening. And that really settled any nerves inside of me because I really believe in the power that comes when we share our stories. And, you know, I have evidence every time I speak that it impacts on somebody's life. And that motivates me. That's my evidence of speaking out. Oh, I love that quote. It's not about you. It's about who's listening because, yeah, that that needs to be our focus for all of these podcasts and every time we talk about trauma or uh, difficult journeys. So that's great. Do you feel like it's getting easier to talk about these things now or to write about them? So easy. I mean, it's almost as if it didn't happen to me. And I don't want to sound blasé, you know, like it's it's been an easy journey. It is a huge process. And I didn't get to this place overnight. You know, it's taken a lot, a lot of a shitload of therapy and many, many years of work. But you can get there. You know, it's really possible to turn it around. And actually, I think now what I have experienced is post-traumatic growth. You, you can grow through what you go through, you know, you, you can actually come out so much stronger because I've found I'm really resilient. I've got all this strength inside that was tested that I never knew about. And if that's inside of me, can you imagine anyone that's listening right now? That is inside of you as well. You can do what I have done. I'm not a superwoman. I don't have superpowers, but we can absolutely heal after any trauma and have a great life. I love that post-traumatic growth. I really feel like that's very true. My oldest son was born four months early. He was a 24-weeker. He just weighed one pound, six ounces, tiny little thing. Yeah, so that was, one of, <laughs> yes, that was one of the great traumas of my life after being sexually assaulted. But my husband and I have talked about this. We've written about it. We've, we're very vocal about our experiences. And fortunately, he is doing great. I mean, he's, you know, he's a college graduate. He's doing really well. But so that helps to be able to talk about it, I'm sure. But it's so true that you tell the story over and over again, and it really helps you heal. Absolutely. Because, you know, when we are traumatized, all the energy is caught in our body. So when my memories returned, it was when my daughter was 13. And that triggered this unleash of memories, pictures, nightmares, flashbacks. And my struggle actually in the end wasn't with the pictures. It was with my mind refusing to accept it. And I went to go for some body work, some therapeutic massage. And the very first time I went, I could hear this person on the massage couch crying and screaming and shouting and fighting with the therapist. And I just thought, that's a lot of noise from someone. Who is that? And then I realized it was me. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So actually, in some way, it really helped my mind because I couldn't trust my mind, you know. What is it? If we cut it open, it doesn't bleed. But I I could trust my body to respond. And that's why I've always, on top of the talking therapy, I've chosen therapies that work within the body because I left my body on that night. But also the trauma is trapped. Every time I did some kind of therapeutic body work, it released the energy that was it caught within ourselves and it really dissolves that sting. So every time I speak, it's standing in my shame and it's standing in my fear and it has no power. You know, shame loves secrets. It loves dark places. But when we bring light to it, it can't exist. 
I feel like I could really benefit from body work. I've never done that kind of thing, but my big PTSD moment was maybe 10 years ago. So, you know, 30 some years after it actually happened and I was called to be on a jury and I was called to the courtroom and the jury, the the case that was in front of us was for a perpetrator that, that had a very, very similar crime profile to what happened to me. So he had broken into a woman's house and had attacked her and And he was across the courtroom, you know, right in front of me. And I had to, first of all, I thought, oh, I can do this. I can be objective as they're asking all these questions. And then I realized that my pulse was racing. I was getting very anxious. And so I asked to be let out of the jury. And to be able to do that, I had to tell everybody in the courtroom that I had been that I was a survivor. You know, I had to be basically interviewed, you know, before to convince them that I was that I was really a, a crime victim. And so by the time I left the courthouse, I was just bawling. And I called my husband and it was like that was the most severe case of PTSD I've ever had. So obviously something that took you completely by surprise, really, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Your expectation that's not what you thought was gonna happen. Yes. And 37 years later, it was it was shocking to me that it was so strong. Yeah. So I know, you know, I know I I have definitely benefited from writing and you know it's been very cathartic and talking about it, but I know I would benefit from some kind of body work. So absolutely because yeah. you know, when I was really bad when I was younger, I would avoid driving past the block of flats where it happened, or mm. I would avoid you know, looking at the cafe where we were drinking, I would go another way, or if I heard an American accent, I would run, or, you know, so I, I used to protect myself, but in situations like you just explained, you couldn't protect yourself. But it took me many, many years to realize, actually, the triggers, as tough as they are, are very good, because it's a little bit like contractions and having a baby. I looked at it like, well, thank you for showing me that there's still this residue left in my body, and I thanked my body for responding how it did, because it always showed me where my work was, where I had to dive in to clean up my trauma. And I always felt it was like one less contraction nearer to me being healed. That was one less trauma or trigger that you would ever have to face again. That's an interesting way to look at it. So let's talk about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You have talked about forgiving your attackers. What was that process like? Well, again, I never really intended to. I kind of call myself an accidental forgiver. <laughs> but it was near, near to the end of having therapy when Anna was 13, but at the end of three years. And my therapist just made a suggestion out loud one day. This was when I was really testing myself. I was putting myself into situations that scared me. So I chose a male American therapist. So you can see I was very um, I was a bit fearless then, even though I didn't realize it. When I look back now, I think, gosh, what was I doing? But he just wondered out loud, you know, maybe they weren't born rapists, these young men. And I was just outraged at first. I was so angry with him. Oh, I was just outraging. And I couldn't believe he would say something so ridiculous to me. But, you know, it planted a seed in my head, which grew. And I it, it sent me on this journey of inquiry. How could these two young men know to be so violent towards somebody else? You know, what? had gone so wrong in their life because I do believe we are all born a blank sheet. We all come into the world the same way. If you look at a baby, they're just infant and they're sponges. They get corrupted, they get conditioned. And somehow I felt compassion and understanding in my heart towards these men because I thought, you know, I've done a good job at living my life as best as I can. 
but they have to live with what they've done to someone else. And I, I don't think that journey is going to be easy. And I saw that to free myself, I mean, you know, I'm not a forgiveness preacher. I don't tell people you have to forgive in order to heal. There's many, many paths to healing. But I saw for me, this was my path. And forgiveness really allowed me to let go of all the hate and anger and revenge that I felt towards them. And I, I mean, I was filled with that rage for years. And I filled my head with these fantasies of the same thing happening to them over and over again. So I was not in a healthy space, but it really allowed me to cut the ties with them, to cut the chains with my past, because they'd have no idea if I was angry at them anyway. But it really, it was an act of self-love. It was totally self-empowering. And it set me free and it was nothing to do with them. You know, I didn't need them to meet with them, to write them a letter, to have them stand in front of me. It was a decision, simple choice that I could make quietly within my heart. And it set me free. Totally. Did you know the names of your attackers? Have you ever yeah, researched I, I them? Know, I do know the name of one of them. He was a neighbor of one of my classmates. And I know the first name of the other one, but I don't know his last name. Yeah, I find that forgiveness is very difficult without any kind of, not talking about a, a crime like this, but even when somebody hurts you. It's much easier when someone apologizes and is accountable to their actions. But when you don't get that, it's way harder to forgive someone. Yeah, it's a tricky subject. So the organization, the Forgiveness Project, they have an exhibition called The F Word because it is a very provocative subject. And they share all these stories of forgiveness from all over the world and all different walks of life of people that have transformed their pain into something better. And they are stories of forgiveness. And, you know, it's something that I work at. You know, I can, I can get really annoyed with a mess in the house. I think, God, I can forgive two people that. And then I get annoyed because the toilet seat's been left up. You know, <laughs> but It's something that I'm always working. And it's just about really seeing what's good for my health and my life. Because when I was angry, it was affecting my kids and my husband. And then what would be the point of bringing them into this world if, if I'm just filled with that rage? So when I think of the word forgiving, I think of it like for giving me the better chance. It was nothing uh, to do with it. Yeah, because it really can eat you alive, that kind of rage. Yes, absolutely. It's like drinking poison and expecting them to drop down and die. We're actually you're poisoning yourself with all that anger. Right. Oh my gosh. That's that's really an interesting way to look at it. So let's talk about your podcast. You started a podcast and also just the kind of work that you're doing with your life right now. Well, up until a couple of years ago, I still worked as a psychotherapist, but sharing my story, you know, I was invited to speak more and more and more and it was overtaking the psychotherapy work. And I thought I need to make a choice here. So I I like a sign. So I said to myself, if I'm meant to be a speaker, I would love to work internationally. And I thought, well, you know, that's never going to happen. And I had this thought, December time, 2018. And I literally woke up on the 1st of January, 2019, with an invitation to speak in Johannesburg in South Africa. <laughs> oh my and then, then on the 5th of January, I woke up with another invitation to speak in the Maldives for UNICEF. And I thought, okay, life, this is a good sign. I'm going to take this sign. So I did. I stopped working as a, a therapist and I put all my energy into speaking. And it was brilliant. It still is brilliant. So in February, nearly a year ago, I was the closing keynote, which is in the speaker's world, it's quite a big thing to be, the, you know, one of the best positions to be the opener or the closer at a big speaker's conference in Namibia. And then guess what? COVID uh, came in. Uh -huh. <laughs> Into my diary. So I, I do some virtual stuff, but it is very different. I do obviously like an audience. So I decided, you know, I've met amazing people in my life with the Forgiveness Project. I'm also a 
participant in an organization called the Global Resilience Project. And it's run by a woman called Emma Bell, who just produced or just published an audio book called Nine Secrets to Thriving. And she has interviewed 50 of us to what makes us all thrive. So we've all overcome adversity. And she's come up with these nine traits that we all do. So I was fascinated. But between them and the Forgiveness Project, I know incredible people and I just thought you know it's really hard in the UK I'm sure it is over there with Covid we're in our third lockdown at the moment and I wanted to share stories of hope stories that will motivate and inspire people to show that strength in that human spirit that despite what happens to us we can turn it around so it's really I guess about healing through storytelling but to show people that none of us are broken beyond repair yeah your podcast is a very similar theme to mine Yes, great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the most uh, similar, I think, that I've found. Yeah, I mean, I generally tell people I'm looking for people who have gone through a shit ton, who have yeah. ever stronger on the other it's side. Better. <laughs> right, right. Were you a public speaker before your TED Talk? I mean, you seem like such a natural, I'm, but... <laughs> I was, actually, yeah. yeah. I've, I've been speaking on and off since I shared my story about six years ago. I was invited to speak, and the very first time I spoke, I realized that I could do this, and I didn't feel terribly nervous. I did feel a bit nervous, but I, I saw the impact of sharing stories, and, you know, Marina, who's from the Forgiveness Project, the founder, she calls us story healers rather than storytellers, and I just have felt that so many times, you know, with the TEDx Glasgow, straight away the next day, a headmaster got in contact, I think he called them principals over there, and he told me that a young student that was with him, three minutes after I finished talking, turned to a teacher and told them about the pain of being raped that she had been <sighs> for three years. And he said, I did that, you know, her listening to me unleashed this and she has shared her story and it's now changed her life. So if I just was there to speak to one person and, you know, that was my job done. I was a speaker before. Not everybody on the TEDx stage that day was a speaker, but we all had coaching and we were really supported in crafting our talk and, you know, getting it down to the, the time limit. And I'm actually invited to do another one, which will take place on March the 6th, which is going to be different because it's now going to be virtual. So I'll be going to the place where they're recording it, but there's no audience. <laughs> I don't oh. know how that's going to go. What's this space? I'll let you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I work with a storytelling organization here called The Immigrant Story. And we oh. did our storytelling event virtually. We did the filming and there were, there were probably like 10 or 15 of us in the room. So we were all distanced and masked and everything. But so there was, you'll probably have a little bit of an audience, hopefully. Yeah. Not quite the 2,000 people that no, I No, no, it's not quite the quite same. But I'm sure you're really used to it now. I mean, you know, just the things that we were so, so difficult for us in the beginning of the pandemic, we're like, yeah, oh, it's another Zoom call. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, shifting the focus a little bit, have you watched or read anything recently that has inspired you? Well, yeah, I, I read all the time. So if I get a guest in and they've written a book, I'll always read their book. I'm interviewing two people soon, but I've never done a double interview. So that's going to be interesting. It's a woman called Pat Sauer and Kerry Fisher. They're from the UK. And both of their teenage boys were diagnosed with serious illnesses. One had mental health issues and one was diagnosed with cancer. And they wrote this book together. Sadly, the one with mental health, Pat's son, Dom, took his life. He drowned himself. But Kerry's son, Cameron, survived cancer. He had a rare lymphoma. But it's this book called Take My Hand. And it's just it's a beautiful book about such a serious subject. It's about the power of friendship and how we support each other and prop each other up. 
but they're so honest and generous in their sharing of their journeys that, you know, they really also, you can see they've really also done it to guide other people that might be going through a similar journey. And it's just it was the most incredible book. I don't think I'll forget it in a long time. Yeah, just glancing over your podcast guests, I yeah, they look like a really amazing collection of people. I was listening this morning to I can't remember his name, the black man that you interviewed. Is it Orlando Bowen? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, and what yeah. a story. Oh, oh, he's from Canada. Yeah, very timely story. story. And, and, you know, sorry to say this, I would expect something like that would happen in America. I thought Canada was a bit, a bit more peaceful. It really shocked me to hear how he was brutalized and falsely accused by the police over there, so much so that the concussion led to the end of his football career. Um, but what a beautiful man. Uh, also a story of forgiveness. But he got up at six in the morning to speak to me as well. I was very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Great, great, great job on the podcast. It's it's really a fun, fun thing to do, I'm finding as well. Yes. So, and the way that I got started in podcasting is I wrote an article about white women's tears. And a black woman from South Carolina found me on LinkedIn. And she asked me if she could interview me for her podcast. And then I found out as I was talking to her that she had this incredible resilience story. So she was the one who really inspired me to start the podcast. Interviewing these people throughout the pandemic and hearing their stories has really just been life-changing for me, you know, so inspiring. And it's about the ripple effect, isn't it? You know, the ripple that we send out and the messages of hope and how we motivate and inspire others. And it, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Yes. And I think when people hear these stories of others who have survived what might seem like insurmountable odds, that it gives them the strength, hopefully, to, to go on and to have hope that yes. they can make their Absolutely. lives better. Yeah, totally agree. Because the young woman who was in the audience at the TEDx Glasgow, I've now met her. I went to school to meet her. I've been to the school Christmas concert. I've been to something else that she's done. And she said exactly that. She said, seeing you stand on that stage with no shame and being so open and honest, she said, just gave me hope. She thought, I'd never, ever get past what happened to me. And I was never going to tell anyone. But she said, I was so affected by what you were saying. Now, I obviously know she was so triggered by what I was saying because there's no warning. You know, you don't know what the TEDx speakers are going to talk about. But she said she's so pleased that she shared her story because he's now being investigated and there's a court case. Oh, that's great. So think back to yourself at age 21. What would you say to her now? I just go back and tell myself that it was never my fault because for years I lived with the guilt that I had done something wrong, that I had invited it in, that it was something to do with my behavior, but I know it was never to do with me. I don't like to have regrets because we can't undo what's happened. And also I think regrets keep us in the past. And I have to accept I did the journey, the journey that I did because I was ready to face it when I was ready to face it. I can't go back and wish I had done this journey years ago because I wouldn't have been ready But the only thing I would really say to myself is that it was never your fault. I think that a lot of times when there are cases of sexual assault, especially alcohol, people often say, oh, she was drunk, you know. And so I imagine that that probably you were probably thinking through that every time that you see any kind of case or TV show or, you know, they blame the victim. My clothing didn't cause the rape. My alcohol drinking didn't cause the rape. 100% of all rapes 
are caused by rapists. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It's that, that's what I find triggering when I am on the, you know, the Facebook comments and people are blaming the victim. That's the most upsetting because nobody, nobody deserves to be raped ever, no matter what they're doing, even if they're in prostitution or, you know, I, it's like, have you ever watched Law & Order SVU? I don't know if that comes to the UK. It might well do, but I haven't watched it. It's a police show that is one of my favorites because it's all about sex crimes, but it's about justice. And for some odd reason, I like to watch the show. And often, Uh you know, depictions of rape, like I haven't watched Game of Thrones because there's too much rape, I think, Mm -hmm. what I've heard. But for Law & Order SVU, I like it because there's there's justice being served. Somehow it's healing for me. So yeah, I do do find that very difficult when they come up with all these excuses. Like I said earlier, it just shows me there's a lot of education education that still yes, needs to be done yes. a lot of work needs to be done in taking away these rapeness you know, and I'm, an, I'm a patron for a few organizations and one of them is an english-based organization called justice is now and they are working to take away all the rapeness and the victim blaming that are used within the court system because you know we can't be naive to think that a jury doesn't already come in with preconceived ideas well so does the judge and so does the lawyers so it's so important to Take away those messages within the court system. I mean, how could you get a fair trial if they come in with these messages, these thoughts? So it's an amazing organization to be part of. My last question, you probably have already answered it, but I'm going to ask ask it to you anyway. And that is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Oh, so many. (laughs) I don't know where to start. So many stories. Um, Well, yes, I'll go back to the very first episode of my own podcast show, an amazing man called Mike Haynes. And his brother, David, was a humanitarian aid worker living in Syria at the time. And he was kidnapped along with a couple of Americans, was taken hostage by ISIS. But sadly, 18 months after his kidnapping, he was beheaded by ISIS. And his video was put up on the internet. So we all, it was available to see if you wanted to see it. But Mike straight away refused to hate. He said every time he gets people to unite, it's keeping his brother alive. And if he chose to hate, then they would have won. You know, that's what they want. They want to conquer and divide people. So he refused to hate. So he goes out now and he shares his brother's story, his story. And he invites people to meet people from other cultures, other races, other religions, to see that we are more alike than we are different. Oh my gosh. I'll have to go listen to that one. How did you yeah, find him? Was that was that through the Forgiveness Project as well? Yeah, or? Uh-huh. I already knew him. He lives in Dundee in Scotland, so he was a friend of mine. But he does amazing, amazing work and yeah, a just beautiful heart. That's amazing. Well, those are all of my questions. It's been just a lovely uh, time chatting with you, Madeline. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day, Madeline. Yeah, you too. Isn't Madeline phenomenal? I was profoundly touched by the way she was able to forgive her attackers and how being happy in her life is the best justice she can seek after what they did to her. Don't forget, you can find photos of Madeline, links to her website, and other details on my website, www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? I'd love to hear from you. Next week's Healing Herself guest is Leah Carey, who tried to be a good girl for decades before waking up sexually and learning to love herself. 
Now she is a sex coach and educator, in addition to host of the Good Girls Talk About Sex podcast. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.